Hey, this is Colby with Thanks Be to Pod. And before we get started with today's episode, we just wanted to say thank you for the immense levels of support that you gave us in 2019. It's because of our patrons and our subscribers and people willing to write us reviews that we were able to do what we did. It was because of patrons and the connections we made in that community that we were able to go to the Q Christian Fellowship Conference where we recorded our last episode with Kip, which you should check out if you haven't done so so far. Okay, here we are in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, let's see if I can find this place. That is not always a given. That's for sure. Oh, here's the church. Wow, if I could find one. Yep, that did not take me at all where I wanted it to. Okay. I missed the, uh... <laughs> I missed the turn. Okay, it's a thanks be to pod road trip for this episode. A couple of months ago, I set out to North Carolina, sort of to my hometown, Charlotte, North Carolina. I grew up not too far away from there to talk with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove at the launch of his new book, A Revolution of Values. All right, I think we're recording. Um, if we don't have sound, that would ruin the... <laughs> All right. <laughs> the, entire, <laughs> the entire thing. Um, well, contemplative silence is nice. <laughs> And now I bring you 30 minutes of contemplative silence with Jonathan Wilson Hardgrove. Nah, I'm just kidding. I was born in Stokes County, North Carolina, tobacco country just down the road from Mayberry. My mama's people are from Mayberry. Uh, and uh, I mean, I grew up on bluegrass music and, uh, you know, country cooking. And Jesus, that all went together. You know how this is. And I was born in uh, 1980. My birth was announced the Sunday that um, after Ronald Reagan was elected that fall. And uh, I think what I've realized uh, as I've gotten older and uh, come to understand my life in the context of American history is that I was born at just the moment when my people became a very strategic target for political organizing. This is why I drove five hours from my home in Virginia to actually sit in a room with Jonathan. Over the past several years of my life, unbeknownst to him, Jonathan has been a theological guide for me. Like Jonathan, I grew up in North Carolina, and like Jonathan, I grew up Southern Baptist. When I was 17 years old, the year before I left for the University of North Carolina, I was convinced that in 10 years, I was going to be a Southern Baptist preacher, conservative to the bone. But during my time at UNC, the liberals there, as many in my state would refer to them, had their way with me. And and by the time I left there, I was a Presbyterian who denounced the idea of biblical inerrancy, believed that women should hold full pastoral office and work to see full inclusion of LGBTQ persons in the church. In 2016, in the wake of the presidential election, as I tried to make sense of the transition that I made and understand the reasons that others that I loved and that I cared about didn't cross the Rubicon 
I discovered Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, someone who, as Jonathan would say, talked like my people, who understood the world that I came from, who on the one hand could talk highly of his religious heritage, and on the other stand as one of its most formidable critics. God, you know, God gets to us in all kinds of ways. There ain't no perfect way. I'm grateful for the church that raised me as, and, and love it, which is why, uh, you know, I push back as hard as I can these days on the way the religious right has manipulated churches like the one I was grown in mm-hmm. because I love those churches. Right. But all I knew as a kid, you know, from the free literature I read that showed up at the church that came in the mail, the, the, the special programs that happened at our church uh, or, you know, in the cultural world we lived in, uh, what we heard on Christian TV, Christian radio was that you know, if you wanted to do all that you could for Jesus, you should get involved in politics. And that only meant Republican politics. And uh, the concern was our values, and our values were only uh, uh, about abortion and prayer in the schools. Right. And, uh, you know, a, a sense that the culture was leading us all astray. Yeah. Um, that was what you should get fired up about and rally people around. Yeah. And so um, uh, I, I wanted to do all I could for Jesus. I was a sincere kid. Yeah. So I got involved in it, and I um, uh, became a you know little foot soldier in the culture wars, and uh, you know worked people local people's campaigns, and then um, I ended up going to the U.S. Senate to page for Strom Thurmond yeah. uh, when I was 16 years old. Yeah, that's Strom Thurmond, the segregationist Dixiecrat. But it was while working with Strom Thurmond that Jonathan's worldview began to change. Showing up in D.C. Uh, as a earnest 16-year-old, you know, ready to put in my time and climb the ranks of the religious right, uh, what uh, helped me begin to turn around was that I got to see it all up close. And it pretty quickly became evident to me that there was a lot of wrangling for power and wrangling for holding on to a particular agenda. There wasn't much of the talk that we got back home about values when it came down to actually doing this stuff. Uh, It was mostly about who was trying to get you and how you could get them back. And, you know, one thing about being a teenager is uh, the world's still pretty black and white. And I felt uh, a kind of visceral reaction to that. I didn't know what an alternative would be. Right, right? Right. So it was kind of a dead end. Yeah. I was at the dark end of the street and did, you know, where else were you going to go? Jonathan left Strom Thurmond's office pretty confused, thinking, this isn't what I thought it would be. And he returned home to North Carolina with a bunch of questions and thoughts. And it was there that he met. Within weeks, I met William Barber. He introduced me to another way of being Christian in public, right? right? Yeah. Uh, which. I didn't even know it was possible. Yeah. You know, nobody had ever told me. Right. We, we, you know, we talked about Dr. King at school, kind of like he was just a nice guy who, right. you know, had uh, helped us sort of brush up this part of our past that was a little bit ugly. Yeah. You know, by that time, the religious right was all, already explicitly co-opting King oh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, appropriating, you know, the content of our character right. as a sort of, you know, uh, a, a basis for a crusade against um, progressive culture. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a, it was a real education for me to, to meet not just Reverend Barber, but a real 
living, breathing, faith-rooted uh, freedom movement. Even though the work and teaching of Reverend Barber pretty much stood in contrast to everything that Jonathan had been taught, for some reason, Jonathan was totally receptive to it. I was, even though I didn't understand all that it meant. Right. I was receptive because I was so desperate. Yeah. You know, I, I, I knew I couldn't keep going yeah. with the uh, religious right that I had been given. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's taken me a long time. I'm still learning yeah. all the time about, uh, you know, the, the fullness of what it means to live into uh, the, the prophetic, grace-filled, you know, freedom movement that led the Hebrew children out of Egypt and raised Jesus from the dead and, right. you know, brought enslaved folks to freedom in this country and behind the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, labor movement, all, all those things have uh, educated me and the way people have lived out their faith in all those eras has educated me. Uh, but there's still a lot to learn. Right. Reverend Barber had a profound effect on Jonathan's life. Learning from him began to affect Jonathan in all sorts of different ways. The way that he saw the gospel began to change. The way that he thought of Jesus began to change. And most importantly, probably for as Southern Baptist, the way that Jonathan read the Bible was impacted. William Barber introduced him to a new way of doing it. I started reading the Bible with other people, right? Yeah. You read the Bible with poor people, and it all of a sudden becomes clear that uh, a lot of this book is written by poor people, and uh, almost all of it's written for poor people. Like, it's good news to the poor. Yeah. And um, when you read it in that context, man, uh, it makes you reconsider whether this whole long story was just to, you know, get me to kneel down and say one prayer that got my heart right, you know, and like... I mean, you know, if what those old little tracks said was the whole of it, doesn't seem like we'd need the whole book. But <laughs> right. the, but the book right. kind of fleshes out a, a a vision of a whole new world, right. and uh, at the center of that world, the prophets and Jesus and all the apocalypses. I mean, everything to me seems to testify that you know the poor are lifted up, the marginalized. Uh, are brought into communion uh, in a way that transforms the structures of of our life together. Yeah. And uh, this is certainly about how we live our lives as individuals and as families. You know, it has a lot to say to that, but it's not exclusively about that. And in some ways, it can't be understood apart from the way we live that out in a broader society, right? right? How can you pray every day, thy kingdom come? I will, like your God, we want your political reality to come here on earth as it is in heaven. How do you pray that and then say, well, the gospel is about, you know, your relationship with God and you get your politics somewhere else. Right. Unfortunately, a lot of us hear the cries of those who are hurting, not as God hears them, but we hear them as a, we hear them as a threat to our own existence, mm -hmm. Right. There are a lot of people who hear Black Lives Matter, and they immediately, in defense, say, Blue Lives Matter. Right. All lives matter. My life matters. Yeah. 
As if saying Black Lives Matter is a suggestion that your life doesn't matter. No. The cry of people who are suffering from injustice is not a cry that says we want to destroy you. It's really a cry that says to unjust systems, please stop destroying us. And if we want to be God's people, I think we have to join with that cry and understand that that's where God shows up always, always. God is most present in the places where people who are crying out for justice are receiving, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the good news that another world is possible. That's where God is. I'm sure of it. I've seen it so many times. And uh, sometimes that makes it into buildings that are called church. When it does, great. Church is happening. But... I'm absolutely sure that God is present then. I'm not always sure God is present when we get together on Sunday mornings and have our show. Can we just pause here and take note of how inspiring Jonathan's story is, especially for those of us who grew up in evangelical communities that have been so influenced by right-wing politics? The way that he speaks about faith as a motivator to fight for the poor and marginalized, these are things that make me proud to call myself a Christian. And it's probably why during this interview you hear me over and over again say, yeah, 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 yes, 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 yes. Being with Jonathan was like sitting in the front row of church, and a good church at that. But here's the deal. When it comes to American Christianity, when it comes to the American Christian landscape today, Jonathan's message isn't the one that is preached from the mega church pulpits, the churches that hold the most influence and power. A large swath of American churches and American Christians believe, truly believe, that right-wing politics and Christian nationalism are coherent with the gospel. And of course, the big question there is, why? I'm wondering if you could speak to a frustration of mine and probably to a lot of people of my age who have wrestled with Christianity and come on, I guess, have walked this journey where we grew up in the Southern Baptist evangelical context. And now we found ourselves within these spaces that are having the conversations that you are having. And yet when we look at those types of churches, they seem to be the only ones growing and Mm -hmm. thriving. It can be disheartening. Mm. Um, And they seem to be perpetuating a gospel that's completely antithetical to the gospel that you are so what what is the the disjuncture there why are why is why is that growing but what you're preaching we have to fight so hard to get people to listen to it Mm -hmm. well when it comes to the obvious measures of success in any culture money and power go a long way towards achieving those ends with or without truth you know, yeah. um, and so to me, it's you know whether you're looking at slaveholder religion in the 19th century, or whether you're looking at you know a, a, a sort of quietist faith that went along with Jim Crow in the 20th century, or whether you're looking at um, you know MAGA religion today, it makes sense to me that a system that you know, has 
money and power and therefore, you know, owns the airwaves and the means of communication and other things yeah. would uh, favor and prop up a religion that not only doesn't question that, but that actually encourages it. Right. That's kind of expected. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's true in the scriptures too, right? Right. right. Uh, when Moses was in Egypt land, Pharaoh was in charge. Mm-hmm. Pharaoh had the power. And, you know, Pharaoh's uh, folks said what God wanted. God wanted what Pharaoh wanted. Pharaoh was God. Uh, And Moses was just this, you know, hayseed crazy guy who comes back from the desert. I mean, he has a connection to the palace, so he knows the language, he knows the place. But, you know, he comes in saying, the God of of the people you enslave is demanding their freedom. That ain't gonna build a mega church. <laughs> it's true, but it's not gonna build a mega church. Right, right. Which is why um, um, it takes a long time. Yeah. For uh, Pharaoh to come around, mm-hmm. and he flips on him, you know, uh, over and over again. I think that's the pattern, right? I mean, that's. I think that's what we should expect. Mm-hmm. That uh, that while. You know, the, the the faith of those who were enslaved on plantations was much more genuinely the faith of Jesus mm-hmm. than the people who used Christianity to enslave them. Right. The enslavers built all the churches. They endowed all the seminaries. Right. They paid the people who wrote the books. Mm-hmm. Of course, they got to tell the official story. Yeah. But, you know, what's true? Mm-hmm. Jesus teaches from a text and from a tradition that has been misused. He says as much. You know, woe unto you, you hypocrites. You're using this tradition against the very purposes that, you know, that it was given for. Um, But if you tell the story in a way that makes sense of the life that God is making possible, you know, in a movement for freedom and love and truth today... Um, it's a story that I think people can see invites them into a different kind of reality. It's, um, you know, when Dr. King uh, quoted Amos to say, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, he was quoting Amos, who, uh, in his own day, right, was challenging the people about their religious acts of worship. You know, Amos says to them, God says, I despise your worship. Stop doing, you know, you can put it in our own context, you know, uh, stop coming into your Sunday morning services, you know, and uh, 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 broadcasting them to uh, multi-campus, you know, spaces where you, 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 rally people and make them feel good and uh, build up a mega church. That's not what I want, God says. Instead, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Go out into the street in Amos 5, which is is that passage that ends with that, you know, beautiful imagery the king picked up on. Earlier in that passage, Amos says, go out into the streets, wail and cry. That is never going to be, you know, the sort of normal activity for the well-to-do society in any age. But there are people who are hurting 
in this country, and they are crying. Whether they're crying Black Lives Matter or they're crying, you know, the our our land matters, our water matters. You know, the native folks who are trying to protect water. Whether they're crying about the you know possibility of the of a future for life on Earth. Yeah. Because you know we have fires and rising waters and all kinds of signs that uh, our climate is in crisis. People are crying out. Jonathan recognizes that if Christians are going to be the ones that are responding to the cries of the poor and the disenfranchised, then something has to change. Something has to give. And that's why he has written this new book, A Revolution of Values. I think a lot of people I talk to in the United States right now are aware that there's a crisis in the faith community. For one thing, people are aware of it because our institutions are uh, dying from flight. Young people are running away from these institutions like nobody's business. Three decades now, the number of people who won't affiliate themselves with any religious tradition has doubled three decades in a row. So fastest growing religious group in America is the nuns. And that's not good news for the convent. It's not the N-U-N-S, it's the N-O-N-E-S, the people who say they're not affiliated with any religious tradition. So that's one sign that faith is in crisis. Everybody in churches knows that. Um, But uh, there's also a crisis in terms of the perception of Christianity uh, in public life. That, you know, you ask people, what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be somebody who follows Jesus? The the number one answer to that question is to be anti-gay. So this politicization of Christianity has led to uh, Christianity being perceived as this sort of exclusive uh, uh, faith that creates a kind of self-righteousness. And all of that, to me, suggests that... uh, that we're not only in a bad political space, we're really in a terrible cultural moment for for Christianity to be what it at its best can be, which is good news to the world. And so, um, and so I think I wrote this book on a revolution of values because I have witnessed among poor and rejected people uh, who are trying to advocate for their families that have been separated, for their voting rights, mm-hmm. for health care, uh, for uh, some action to you know, uh, stave off the ecological destruction that our whole economy has uh, catapulted us toward. In all those things, I've met these people who have a faith that inspires me. And that I think offers hope to the church. So, revolution of values is a kind of uh, is a kind of call for people of faith, people in churches, to uh, to to recognize that there is good news for us, for our institutions, and for the world. But it's going to mean a real transformation of where we look for direction, yeah. of where we uh, find our way forward. And uh, I think God has already given us a lot, yeah. uh, but we've, we've largely overlooked these people, even in our, you know, so-called liberal or progressive spaces, right. 
you know, where we think we've got things right yes. on this or that issue, uh, we've still failed to listen to and receive the gifts of, you know, in my read, the people who are doing the most to show us right. what faith is. Yeah. And and that, I think, is a way of reclaiming the heart of the tradition, right? So the psalm that says, the stones that the builders rejected have become the chief cornerstones, right? The the the, the Ezekiel's vision that the that the you know bones of the people who've been chewed up by the system can be brought together to raise up uh, you know a, a new people. That's where I see promise and life for the future, not only of the of the church, but for the future of a healthy society. And uh, that's what. I wanted to share with this revolution of values and to really give people a resource to have a conversation around how we can live out our faith in public life. That's what we're doing here tonight, having that conversation. Because as much as I want to tell some of these stories, I also want people to realize that like this faith already exists among us. Part of the challenge is that the narrative of the religious right has marginalized that kind of practice, right? So that, so that to be a, you know, to be a politically engaged or a publicly engaged religious person was only to be uh, somebody who is either advocating for the Republican Party or protesting the abortion clinic, right? right? right. And, and, uh, and, you know, the only, quote-unquote, religious freedom issues are these questions of, you know, whether uh, you can claim a religious exemption to deny somebody some civil right that d- doesn't line up with your understanding. So that's a very narrow definition of what, what it means to live out faith. And, and, and so what I'm trying to encourage in our churches is for us to get together and talk about what we value, right? Talk about what matters to us because of our faith and to talk about who that connects us to and how we're working with those people in our communities to lift up the, the, the good of the whole. Because while these mega churches, you know, like, uh, you know, Joel Osteen hosting Kanye West, you know, with this, this, you know, Paula White, who's now the uh, religious liaison for the White House, like this kind of sort of superstar Christianity gets all the play in terms of like what we pay attention to on the news or in public. But the vast majority of Christians do not worship that way. Most people who go to church go to a church that has about 100 members every Sunday. And most of those people are not extremists. Right. And don't buy into this whole thing. Most of them are deeply engaged in their community. They've got a food bank. They've got, you know, some thing that ties them in with what's actually going on. And they want to live out their faith. And 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 I want that to be represented, right, in the ways that we talk about faith and the ways we engage publicly. So that's a lot of what this book is about. Yeah. And I see those people, you know, engaging through the Poor People's Campaign all over the country. You know, little churches hosting the local environmental group or the local... Uh, uh, labor union and uh, folks really connecting that with this story that they gather to sing and pray and proclaim every Sunday. So although Jonathan Wilson Hargrove spends a great deal of his time and energy critiquing the religious right, speaking truth to power, and although he knows that he is standing in opposition to what is considered mainstream Christianity, not to be confused with mainline Christianity, I mean the largest non-Catholic denomination in the United States is the Southern Baptist denomination, which 
you know, has some pretty hefty ties to the things that Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove is critiquing. Jonathan knows he's going up against those things, but even though he knows that, he is still hopeful. He's still hopeful that this message that is at the core of the gospel, to stand up for the poor and the disenfranchised, that that message can take hold and that Christians can be empowered to live that out all around the country. I am hopeful because I have seen people coming together, building new coalitions of folks who are determined to work for a moral agenda in public and a moral agenda that lifts up the poor, that guarantees you know access to health care and the things that people need. I've seen those people coming together in places where people usually don't get involved in politics, right? So that's where I'm ho- I'm hopeful right now uh, because in just a couple weeks ago in Kentucky, three counties in the eastern part of Kentucky really flipped the governor's race. And uh, I've been in those counties, and I know those people, and they're all coal miners or used to be coal mining families. Most of them are white. Uh, they all go to some church on Sunday morning uh, if they can get there. And they have been themselves organizing around uh, putting their faith into practice. I have no doubt that that could change the landscape of this country because without a Christian nationalist base, not only is there no Donald Trump, there's no uh, coalition that would back a pro-corporate agenda that hurts most people, right? This has been the way they've held their coalition together. And so uh, both parties would have to change if just 5 to 10% of those people who have just completely dropped out of the political process engaged around these issues, right? So in the last election, 28% of people who could vote voted for Hillary Clinton, 26% of people who could vote voted for Donald Trump, 40% didn't vote. And they didn't vote because they didn't see any agenda that that motivated them or, or, or that they, you know, felt like would make that much of a difference. So that's where I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful in, you know, pe- people from that 40% getting engaged. And, and, and I see that happening through the work that I've been doing with the Poor People's Campaign. So it's a, it's a way that a revolution of values can become real and concrete in active participation of a broad coalition of people and people who talk about their faith, whatever it is. Sometimes it's Christian faith. Sometimes, you know, Muslim sisters and brothers. Sometimes it's people who, who um, aren't part of a faith tradition, but, but, but do have a conviction that there is a, there is a morality, right? There's a morality that suggests that what's happening is, is just wrong, right? It's not that it's Republican, or that it's a conservative agenda. It's no, it's that something's happening that's wrong, and we've got to work together to change uh, a system that would allow this kind of wrong. Someone came to you and said, "Jonathan, I hear <clears throat> everything that you're saying. What can I actually do tomorrow to go out and make this possible? Do this work? Yeah. What the organization, Poor People's Campaign? Yeah. What 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 can I do? Well, the Poor People's Campaign is made up of uh, really thousands of grassroots organizations around the country now because there are 43 different state-based coalitions and 
you know, some of those coalitions have hundreds of local groups that have joined them. This is what I notice about those groups, and everybody can find one in their community. Those groups are groups of people who are directly impacted by something, right? right? right. The coal ash is in their water. You know, the police officers are killing their children. The federal government is taking their land. You know, just talking to these folks out in Arizona about this, you know, a land swap deal where the holiest place for this Native American community down there has been sold out from under them to this multinational corporation. So people directly impacted by that who are working on an issue, you know, an issue that matters to them because it's going to impact them and their kids and their community. But then, you know, they realize that if if they're going to be able to make a difference on that, they're going to have to connect with other people. So I think the best way in is to find out what impacts you or people you know and love where you are, get involved in that group, and then connect that up with what's impacting others. Because what we see over and over and over is that the same powers that, you know, are denying health care, like we were talking about earlier, are also fighting against living wages, are also privatizing schools in ways that are resegregating them, right? Are also, you know, giving corporations breaks that are allowing for the gentrification and just sort of demolition of of whole neighborhoods in our cities. So issue after issue, we're up against the same forces. And those people, you know, who who think they're serving their own interests, even though ultimately I don't believe they are, they think they are, they're a pretty small minority, right? They know that they can't be in power and they can't set the agenda that impacts everybody else without convincing people that they don't share interests, right? And so the whole history of this kind of politics has been one of divide and conquer, right? You have to split people up. You have to tell, you know, Christian folks that gay folks are their enemy. You have to tell black folks that white folks are their enemy. You have to tell brown folks that the black folks are their enemy. There's always these issues, that wedge issues that try to use to split people up to keep us fighting one another so that people don't come together and say, you know, at the end of the day, on a lot of these issues, right. we share common interests. Right. The major- the great majority of us do. Yes. And we need to build power together in order in public life to promote those issues. So Jonathan's message is all about coming together as a collective of people who are motivated by the gospel, by our religious values, to stand up for what is right. And that's exactly what he was doing in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was hosting an event with a bunch of different leaders, religious leaders, community organizers in Charlotte who are working to make Charlotte a better city, a more just city, a city that is more inclusive and equitable. And so part of what I did was I went to that event. I got to speak with some people there and hear how Jonathan has influenced their life. My name is Nate. Hi, Nate. What's your name? I'm Moran. Moran. Good to meet you. <laughs> and what uh, brings you to see Jonathan Wilson Hart grow? Well, um, so I actually just got done leading a couple of book studies um, on reconstructing the gospel yeah. with a group, um, two groups of women um, at my congregation down in Rock Hill. So the timing was perfect, um, and we have been beautifully impacted by his work um, and really kind of 
the space of being laid bare open, kind of dealing with the wounds that we all bring to the table. We all grew up in the South. Yeah. So we all carry that history. Um, and part of what was so beautiful about both of these groups is that they were highly intergenerational. Um, and so I actually am waiting on three women to join me now who are all retired school teachers. And So yeah. I was able to meet these three ladies that Marin is talking about. And, you know, first time podcasting woes, I wasn't able to get them on the microphone, even though they were totally open to interviewing with me. But the work that they're doing together in their little small group is really important. And I'm so grateful for people like Marin who are bringing people together to have these really important conversations. Sometimes it's really easy, and and I know in Reconstructing the Gospel, Jonathan writes about this really beautifully, it's really easy to band-aid over these things and think that we're going to have some kind of ministry that's going to fix it. Um, And there's this twofold piece that happens, right? There's this really looking at ourselves and what are all the ways that we go through the world doing harm, not realizing it, because we carry these histories with us. Um, But then also, what are the ways that we do this work in community with one another? And those two things have to happen simultaneously. And what, what do you think are some of the ways that you're doing that and that people can do that? Yeah, I think we're in, we're exploring it. I think for a long time, uh, we've band-aid. We've done the whole just band-aid over it and pretend like it's all okay. Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> I think that's part of what drew particularly this group of ladies to come tonight. Um, is They're kind of in that place of being late, feeling pretty bare yeah. and, and laid open in the middle of it. Um, and feeling a little lost in that. And I think that's an okay place to be. Like, even right now as we're heading into Advent, like, it's okay to feel a little lost in it. And I think that's where we're at. We're feeling lost in it. And that's totally okay. So you said your name is Marin? Marin. Marin. Uh Uh-huh. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Nate. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. It was pretty cool getting to see all of the different folks that filled that room to see Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. And I know each of them has been impacted by Jonathan's work in some way. I'm sure that many of them have stories like Marin's. When Jonathan spoke, he said a lot of the things that we had already talked about earlier during our interview, and he gave the same call to action, that it's time that we have this revolution of values, that we move forward, that something has to give. There was this one part during the event that really stuck with me, actually right at the beginning, after Jonathan had introduced the folks from Charlotte who were joining him to talk about this revolution of values, how we could leverage our faith and our privilege to do good work. Jonathan paused and invited the entire room to join him in song. She says, when we get together, we need to sing because the point of the song is to get to the singing and the point of the singing is to make us into a community. And so uh, I think if we're going to have a community conversation, it might help us to sing a little bit. So let's sing this song that goes, Guide my feet while I run this race. Thanks Be to Pod is hosted by Colby Long and me, Nate Dove. If you want to help out the show, if you like what we're doing, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash thanks be to pod or thanks be slash support. The freest and easiest way to help out the show is by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to get to 100 by the end of the year. Special thanks to Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove for coming on today's episode. We'll be back in two weeks. Hold my hand, guide my vote, Lord, while I run this race. Guide my vote, Lord, while I run this race. Oh, Lord, guide my vote, Lord.
to run this race in vain. All right, give yourselves a hand. That's a...